Welcome to the Rocky Messages Podcast. Rocky is a community of believers that want to know Jesus and love like him. If there's something today you'd like to hear more about, make sure to listen to our weekly podcast called Rocky Unscripted. This is where we take Sunday topics and go even further with conversation, research, and study. But for now, let's take a listen to this week's message. Amen. Church, it's good to be back with you. I, as some of you may not know this, but I was in uh, Kenya with a group of 20 people um, for the last 10 days. Actually, it was about a week ago that we were there, but was there for 10 days. Got to take my two daughters with me. It was super fun. Had a great time with them. My dad was able to go. It was a great family trip. Um, but an awesome time together to see Missions of Hope International in Nairobi, Kenya. And if you missed last week's message, you kind of missed what all of that is about. So I'd encourage you to go back and watch that. Matt and I were able to uh, teach from the, the uh, rooftop of our school there in the slums of Mathari Valley. And a hundred, or excuse me, a million people live in that valley. And uh, in Nairobi, it's interesting, in Nairobi, there's 4.5 million people, 70% of them live in the slums. And so we were able to be there and you would not believe what a school that is helping 800 kids in that area and 22,000 kids through Mohi are in schools and churches associated with them. You would not believe what you were able to do to affect that community through your generosity. So I just wanna encourage you, keep giving, go on a trip with us like that. It has been a phenomenal time. But I got home, was a little under the weather when I came home, tested negative um, on COVID, but got home, had some kind of Kenya something, and uh, then finally got over it and was able to jump back in yesterday. And so we had the trip that was amazing, but yesterday, you may not be aware of this, but we had hundreds of people from our church that were outside the walls of this place uh, participating in something we do every year called Rocky Surf. And so it was, it was a fun time, blast. I worked at Thunder Valley um, uh, K through eight over in the Frederick area with about 60 people just working on the grounds and taking care of that school. And we had people working at uh, Niwot Elementary and Indian Peaks and all kinds of elementary schools, middle schools. We were working in neighborhoods. We were working on community paths and sports fields. And, and what's awesome when we get to do that is that people always ask us, they're like, hey, why are you doing this? And we'll say, well, hey, we're just here to serve. Like we just wanna, we believe as a church that we want part of our mission is to know Jesus and love like him. And so this is just a way where we get out and we serve our community and ask the question, how can we help? And uh, it always gains influence for us, for us, connection with our schools, connection with our community leaders. And so if you worked on uh, Rocky Serve yesterday at either of our campuses, let's just give those people a hand. And I want to encourage you as a church, man, that's what we do. And so anytime there's an opportunity to get out and to serve in our community, it creates influence, it creates relationship, it creates conversations. And there's so many stories from Rocky Serve where we serve people in their homes or their neighborhoods, and now they've come to Christ, they know Jesus, and now they're sharing that with other people. And so make sure when we have an opportunity like that, jump in and help us serve. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to both campuses right now and all our people online want to welcome all of you. I want you to get to the book of Ephesians and we're going to start a new series today on the idea of identity. And here's what I want you to understand. I think identity is one of the biggest issues of our day. I think truth is a big issue. What is truth? Where does it come from? But identity is a huge issue. Who defines it? Where does it come from? And then what does it say in our life? And here's what we believe. And I think scripture really speaks to this. When you tell someone who they are, like at the core of their identity, you don't even have to tell them how to behave because they innately know and understand because of the value or understanding of who they are. That can go positive, but it can also go negative. 
When I was a sophomore in high school, we got a new basketball coach. Basketball is a big thing for me. I think you know that. Talk about it a lot, very involved in that. But um, when I was a high schooler, man, it was almost everything. Man, I loved playing basketball. Problem was, is I didn't play at a basketball school. So I went to Glencoe High School in Hillsborough, Oregon, and we were predominantly a football school. Not predominantly, like we were the football school in the state at the time. We'd been to numerous state championships, won a couple. I mean, they were always in the running for the state playoffs and the championship. And then there was us group of guys who liked to play basketball. And the only reason we would win basketball games usually was because there was a few of the football players that liked basketball and they'd come and they'd just push people around and we'd win a few games. But we were a football school. My sophomore year, we got a new coach. He came from Central Oregon from a basketball school and he had posted a record in four years of 96 and four. Yeah, wow. Now, if you're not a sports fan, what that means, the last 100 games, he lost four games. And uh, excellent, excellent basketball uh, school and done really well. Well, he came to my school. First year, we did fairly well because we had some football players that played. We made the first round of the playoffs, got bounced. And then all the football players quit playing basketball. And all of a sudden, there was just a bunch of us basketball players left. And we weren't very tall. And we weren't very strong. And we weren't very fast. And our coach figured out that really, really quickly. And he began to tell us who we were as a basketball team. He'd look at me and he said, Moyers, you're 6'3", you play like you're 5'11". He's like, Moyers, I'm not going to write down that you're 6'3", on our, on our sheet, you know, that goes out the program until you start playing like you're 6'3". He's like, you're too short, you're too small, you're not quick. I mean, he just go through the whole nine yards and he began to tell this about our, to our team. Our junior year, we started playing and we started losing some games. And it went from you're too short, you're too slow, and you're too weak to you guys are losers. And unless you figure this out, man, you're not gonna win any games this year. And we lost a lot of games that year. And we played like what he told us we were. We kind of played like losers. It was interesting that summer before my senior year, um, there wasn't a whole lot of hope going into the senior year because we had the same coach, we had the same players. We're thinking, what are we gonna do? Well, summer league was interesting. It was like for us, we loved summer league because our high school basketball coach was not allowed to coach us in summer league. So one of the parents had to coach. And so my buddy, Matt, his dad, Mr. Kasberg, he took us for summer league. And it was really interesting. We walked in and I remember first game, Mr. Casper gathers around. He'd been a high school coach. He'd even been a college coach. He, grabbed, he gathers this kid, group of kids and he looks at it and he says, guys, we're not the tallest team out there. We won't, we won't ever be the tallest team. He said, we're not gonna be the quickest team out there. We won't, but guys, I've watched you guys play since you were in elementary school. I've been to all kinds of your games. He said, you guys are a smart team. You know the game of basketball. You can be the smartest team out there. And here's the deal. You may not be the tallest team. You may not be the quickest team. But guys, you can shoot the lights out. And guys, we could. We could shoot. We had guys on our team. They could shoot. He said, guys, we will always be the smartest team. And we will always be the best shooting team out there. You put those two things together. You play some good defense and you play hard. Guys, we can win games. And we're looking at Mr. Casper and going, yeah, maybe. We go into summer league. And we're playing in summer league. And that was kind of club teams back then, what you have now. And so we're playing in summer league. And I remember the first couple games, we, we came close. Like first of all, a couple games, we're losing to teams that we lost to like 30. We're losing by five or six. We took a couple teams to overtime. And then all of a sudden we won a game. Mr. Casper's looking at us. He's saying, guys, remember, hey, you guys are a smart team. We can win. You guys are a great shooting team. We can outshoot these other teams. You'll play some defense. We can win. And we started to believe 
And Matt Cat, or Matt's dad took a liking to, obviously, his son, but also to me. And he began to give us the ball at the end of the game situations. And he'd say, Sean, I want you to take it. We're going to set a pick for Sean here. Sean, would you shoot the ball? I want you to score. I want you to win this game. I had numerous opportunities, and we won some games. We came to Tigard High School. Come down to the playoffs of, of Summer League, we came to Tigard High School. And Tigard High School was one of the best teams in the state. They were in our league. And they ended up being the eventual state championships in um, our senior year, and we beat them by 10 at the end of the summer league in playoffs. Then we came up against Hillsborough High School. Hillsborough High School was our rival. It was, it was one of the, supposed to be the best team in the state, ended up being the runner-up to Tigard High School. We took them to double overtime. One of my best buddies hit a last-second shot to beat us in double overtime. Here's the point. When you tell people who they are, they begin to behave like it. They begin to believe it. And Matt Casper's dad looked at us, and he said, Sean, you... You're a player. You may not realize you're a player yet, but you're a smart ball player. And if you'll play the right play, way and you're a shooter, if we will play together as a team, we can win. And we began to believe we were winners. Problem was, we went back to our senior year of high school, had the same coach that told us we were too short, too slow, and we were losers. And we went two and 21 that year. See, the problem is, is this with identity. Identity is critically important. But identity determines some things in our life. What we believe about ourselves, what we have been told about ourselves, what we begin to internalize and believe about our identity. I'm not talking your name. Everybody has a name. I'm talking about the labels you have been given because of your behavior, because of your background, because of your status, because of your parents, because of whoever it might be. We've all been given labels and some of them are positive and some of them are negative. But what happens is no matter what those labels are, when we begin to internalize them and to believe them, we begin to behave accordingly. I think we, it's no secret that there's some of you that walked in the door today and you would look at a father or you look at a mother or you would look at somebody very influential in your life and you would say, I've been given a good identity. I've been given a strong identity, a strong belief in myself because they instilled in me that I was a winner, not a loser. There would be others that would be walking through this door or the door at the Frederick campus or sitting there watching online and say, my father or my mother told me a different story. And I've had a hard time overcoming that belief about myself because it became ingrained in me that I was lazy or that I was a people pleaser or I wasn't good enough or I was average and I began to believe in average. I began to produce average and I've become content with average. And those are just simple things that, that might be labels that might even be for some of you to say much, much worse. And what the truth of scripture comes back in and says to us and what the truth of the book of Ephesians comes back in and says is that there is an identity that has been given to every single one of us. It's not decided by your father. It's not decided by your mother. It's not decided by your boss. It's not decided by your spouse. It's not decided by anyone else. God is the designer of us. That means he gets to be the one who is the definer of our identity and the labels in which we carry. And what's interesting about identity is you believe the words, we have this tendency to believe the words that other people say about us. So the question would be is, is whose words are you listening to? The book of Ephesians is, is, is a beautiful book that talks about identity. It's written by a guy named Paul, and I want us to just jump in, and I want us to start with two verses. We're going to look at the actual greeting of the book, and we're not going to look at anything else today. We're going to look at two verses. Paul starts off, and Paul writes this. He says, 
In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, he says, Paul, this is a greeting. He's telling you who wrote the book. He's telling you who he wrote it to. And he's getting ready to tell you why he wrote this book and what the message of this book is. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus. So that's the location. To the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know the last time you opened a letter, but you open emails every day. And I don't think you open too many emails that have a greeting like this, right? I mean, usually it's, hey, what's up? Hey, how's it going? Or just, hey, or hi, or dear so-and-so. That's the extent of our greetings. When you go back into the ancient writings, into Greek and, and to other writings, you find that their greetings meant something. Always told you who it was from, always told you who it was, was to, but then it gave the message and the meaning of whatever that letter was going to say in the greeting. And so here's what I wanna do. I just wanna break down on this idea of identity, what Paul says, and what's gonna capture the meaning of the rest of the book through looking at the author, through looking at the place he was writing to, and through looking at the people that he was writing to and the message he was giving. The greeting starts off this way. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So Paul's the author. Interesting enough, Paul's writing, Paul, if you understand your New Testament, the book of Acts, so if you, if you take the book of Ephesians, it's about two-thirds of the way back in your Bible. It's in the New Testament. You can understand the New Testament this way. The Gospels start off your New Testament. It gives the biography of Jesus. Then there's this really important book that defines the rest in the New Testament. It's the book of Acts. It's basically a history book. It's the Acts of the Apostles or the beginning of the church. And so it spans decades of time that you can take the other books of the New Testament and slide them in and find them in chapters in the book of Acts. So for instance, Ephesians. At chapter 19 and 20 of the book of Acts, you see that Paul has started a church in Ephesus. The people in Ephesus were called Ephesians, the Ephesian people. And so what Paul is doing is he's writing, Paul writes 13 books in the New Testament, 13 epistles, epistles, the Greek word letter, and he sends it to the different churches in Corinth, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, in Galatia, Galatians, or the area of Galatia, sends to those churches in Galatians. Then you get to Ephesians. He sends a letter saying, here's how you do church. Here's how you do life. Here's how you interact with Jesus to the Ephesian church. Now, it's interesting. You look at Paul and you probably think, man, this guy's been a Christian forever. Well, if you know the story and the history of the New Testament, Paul's identity was not that he was a Christian starting off. Paul's identity that he was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. So you can almost think Democrat and Republican, man, they sit on far sides of the map, right? For Paul, Paul was a Pharisee who was a teacher of Jewish law. Christianity came, Jesus was resurrected. It was a continuation. It was a fulfillment of the law. Pharisees did not believe in that. So what Pharisees began to do is they crucified Jesus. They began to crucify and kill Christians. They put warrants out for their arrest. And Paul was one of the biggest Pharisees that there was. One of the most well-known, one of the most up and coming. You first see him in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 7. He's standing there giving his okay to the execution of a guy named Stephen, who's one of the best leaders, young and up and coming leaders in the early church. So Paul, identity, Pharisee, label, legalistic persecutor of Christians, giving his okay to kill them. 
Then what happened? He wrote 13 books in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 9, Paul's on his way to Damascus, warrants in hand for Christians. Jesus shows up. The resurrected Jesus appears to him in a vision. Paul falls off his horse. Jesus stands there in front of him, bright light shining and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, why did I say the name Saul? His name's Paul, right? No, his original name was Saul. His given name by his family was Saul. That's what he'd been known by. Jesus shows up and he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He says, I have chosen you not to be a Pharisee, not to be a teacher of Old Testament law, but to be a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. I've chosen you to be my chosen interest in, instrument to go to the world and share the gospel to the Gentile people. And at that moment, he said, no longer will your name be Saul, it will be Paul. Do you catch the identity change? All of a sudden, in a moment, God looks at Paul and he, or Saul and he says, your name's going from Saul and it's gonna be Paul. Your identity's going from Pharisee to being follower of Christ. Your label, legalistic persecutor of Christian, missionary to the nations. And if there was not a Saul who became a Paul, there is not a Rocky Mountain Christian church. You see, Paul took the gospel outside of Jerusalem. He took it outside of Judea. He took it outside of Israel and took it to the world. And we are here because he's one of the greatest missionaries of all time. Why does that matter? We talk about identity. When you know who you are, you know how to behave. When you tell somebody who they are, you don't even have to tell them how to behave. God said, here's who you are, Paul. And God was into this. Here's what you need to understand. If you go back to the Old Testament, God did this numerous times. There's a guy named Abram in Genesis. Abram's sitting around in, in this one location and God comes to him and he says, Abram, I'm gonna change your name and I'm gonna change your destiny and I'm gonna change your responsibility with my people. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna create a new nation of people and it's gonna come from your family. And Abram looked at him and said, hey, uh, God, I'm like 90 some years old. <laughs> How's that gonna happen? And my wife, Sarai, she's 90 some years old. And he says, hey, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And he says, I'm gonna change your name. And he changes it from Abram to Abraham. Abraham and Sarah have a son named Isaac who ends up having a son, having a couple sons, one of them, Jacob, who becomes the father. His name was Jacob, who gets changed to Israel, who becomes the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Abraham is called the father of our faith. You see, God took a name and he changed a name and he changed an identity, which ultimately changed the destiny for Abraham, for Abraham's family, and for everyone who would come after him that is a believer in faith. You see, God's just into that. God takes broken identities, less than identities, and he calls people up. In scripture, it was gave them a name change, gave them a responsibility change, and gave them a destiny change. There's a guy in the New Testament that's probably the most famous one. His name was Simon. Jesus would walk by Simon's boat and he would, he would talk to Simon, build a friendship with Simon, then ultimately say, hey, Simon, push your boat out. I wanna teach from the shore to the crowds of people that are following me. He builds a relationship with Simon and then he finally gets out of Simon's boat one time. He turns around and he looks at Simon and he says, Simon, I want you to follow me. And no longer is your name gonna be Simon. Your name is going to be Peter. Your name is gonna be Peter and on this rock, on this statement of faith that Peter gave that you are the Christ, the son of the living God and on who Peter was as a leader, I'm gonna build my church. And when Jesus left, what did he do? 
He took Simon, no, not Simon, he took Peter, who'd been given a new name, who had spent three years with Jesus learning his new identity, and Jesus handed him the church, and he said, you lead this group of 120 people, and you go make the church. And the first day the church started, Peter preached an incredible sermon, and 3,000 people came to Christ. Peter was the most ragtag, temper guy, foot in mouth guy that Jesus took and he said, because I am with you, I'm gonna change you. I, I don't know what that says to you, but there is hope. There is hope for me that no matter what identity I walk in with, no matter what insecurities that I may walk in with, no matter what labels that I might have from my background or my behavior or whatever it may be, no matter what you walk in with, God says, Identity determines destiny, and your father, your mother, your boss, your spouse, nobody else defines that. God is the one who defines what our identity is, and he can change it in an instant. Paul, an apostle, do you understand what that title means? Apostle means that it was a follower, a leader that had been chosen by God who had witnessed the resurrection. Paul claims himself, he said, I saw the risen Christ, I was this, I ran into Jesus, and it changed my identity to this. I think there's some of us today that we're begging for an identity change, but we've not really even run into the Savior Jesus that can give us that identity change. Today can be that day. Paul goes on and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, but then it goes on and he says the next part of it, he says to God's holy people in Ephesus. I think to understand the book, you gotta understand the author. Do you understand the author and who he's writing to? You gotta understand the place he's writing to. He says to God's holy people in Ephesus. When you think about Ephesus, I think about biblical towns and I just think about these little small villages, right, that you know, Jesus would have walked through and some of the villages he described were that way. They were small. You can just imagine camels around, goats around and people walking their flocks through. Ephesus was not that. Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a very important political city. There were two ports that came in, or two, um, two trade routes that came and converged on Ephesus at this port. And it was a very wealthy, politically charged city. So people from all, all over the place would come. And if you want to think about it in our terms, um, Rome, in the Roman Empire, Rome would have been Washington, D.C. Ephesus would have been New York or L.A. It was that kind of place. It was this metropolitan place. There was a lot of people from coming other, from other areas because of the trade routes that came through. And so there were all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of religions, all kinds of ideas. It was a very wealthy city because of the trade. And also, there was a temple there called the Temple of Artemis. And that temple served as the national bank for the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. And so it was the one location on the eastern side of the empire that rich people could secure their money and put it there. So many, many wealthy people lived there. It was a very spiritually charged city. It was also a very sexually charged city. And interesting enough, the two went together. So all these people would come into Ephesus and they came from all over the place and the people in Ephesus were smart. And so they built temples to many of the different gods of the different people that came from all over the place. There was gods to Isis, there was gods to, or temples to Isis and Serapis and all these different gods. But the main one was to Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Acts chapter 20, there's a story of a riot that happens there. But the temple to Artemis was actually one of the seven wonders of the world. It was huge. Um, it was beautiful. 
Uh, people would go there and they would worship daily. And part of their worship, it was um, sexuality was part of that. Prostitution was part of that. We don't have to go into the details, but it was a rough place. And when you step back into Ephesus, you almost just kind of feel like you're stepping into modern day Western society. You think about the relativism was there. You think about the sexuality was there. You think about the, um, the greed that was there. I mean, all these different things. And I think what's so interesting about Ephesus is that the church thrived there. You would look at all these different temples, you would look at all these different influences from philosophies and ideas that came from all over the place, but what you found is the most influential, one of the most influential churches in early church history was Ephesus. Like if you wanna think about the who's who that came out of different churches, it was like most of them came out of Ephesus. So you go through the Bible, Luke, where did Luke come from? He came from the church in Ephesus. Where did Timothy come from? Um, where did Apollos come from? Where did Priscilla come from? Where did Aquila come from? All these people that Paul mentions that were some of his greatest partners in ministry, they came from or were engaged in and involved in the church in Ephesus. And it just kind of baffles my mind sometimes. I look at a place like that and I think, how does the church thrive in a culture that is so opposite of the identity of the church? Why? Exactly because of that. You see, we, when Christians live out their God-given identity, it is so countercultural to what happens everywhere else. When there is greed, there is unselfishness. When there is relativism, where it's like, hey, you believe what you want to believe and know what I believe is true. No, when there is a foundation and an anchor, there is something to grab onto. Everything about Christianity, because we were created by God, designed by God, is, our identity is given by God. There is something that happens when we live in that identity. And what happens in our society today, because you look at it and you're like, Ephesus is now. What's the problem with the church? Well, the problem with the church is, is when we spend so little time connecting with God in our God-given identity and we allow media and social media and schools and this and that, and we could go down and you could name them, and I could name them, all the different things to define what our identity is, then the church loses its power to influence the culture. Man, what happened in Acts chapter 20 is there is this massive riot because Paul and this band of Christians have come in and they've created this church in Ephesus. And one of the actual um, trades that happened in Ephesus, and it was a pretty big economic thing there, is they would sell idols to all the different temples, but the main one was to Artemis. And there was a guy named Demetrius and he was a silversmith and he would make all these idols out of precious metals and he would sell them. And even if you're a tourist, you would come in and you would buy these things. People stopped buying them. And his business was going down the tubes because of Christians, because they were speaking of the resurrection and people were buying into Jesus and finding a new identity, identity that was a healthier identity. It was a more holistic identity that was an identity that was founded on something that, that was stable. And so they quit buying these things and Demetrius rounds up all of these people and they fill this big, huge Colosseum. You can see a picture of a Colosseum just like that. You can see Ephesus was not some small place they filled this Colosseum with 20,000 people and they began to chant for four hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They tried to stone Paul. They had to take Paul away. They had to sneak him out of the city. But the point was this, that Christianity was changing the culture that was such a 
selfish and greedy and sexual culture, Christianity was making, was a light that was changing everything. Now here's what's interesting though. It's just as a new identity can be gained, a new identity can be lost just as quickly. Ephesus is found in modern day Turkey. So where Ephesus was then, the, the actual location now that you would see around that area, it's the country of Turkey. I don't know if you know much about Turkey, but it's one of the least Christian nations in our world. 73 million people, population, 98% are Muslim. The most influential church in the New Testament. Somewhere along the lines, people began to buy into the secular culture. People began to live by a different identity. And all of a sudden, the influence in a community was lost. Church, I don't know about you, but here's what I believe. People will talk about our Western culture and, man, the church. Man, if I, just, I simply believe, and I believe it is true. Man, I see it in Kenya. I see it in this area, in the slums, how people are living out their identity and is changing in a ridiculously poverty-stricken area. I believe the same can be true here. We may not have poverty physically, financially, but we do have it spiritually. And I think people are looking. And what God says is when we live out our God-given identity, we're gonna talk about what that is and where it comes from in just a second, but when we live out our God-given identity, it changes everything. But the problem is too, is it can be lost in just a few short moments. Did you know that there are 168 hours per week? If you're a parent, you need to know this. There's 168 hours per week. The average teenager spends 40 hours in school. That's just in school hours, 40 hours. The average teenager also spends 45 hours per week online. I don't know if you realize that, but they spend more time online, whether it be social media or streaming Netflix or whatever, online than they do in school. And then they sleep another 40 to 50 hours a week. You have 23 hours of potential influence in your kids. And the problem is, is most of them are finding their identity from media and social media and friends and not from us and from Jesus Christ. You wanna talk about the influence of the church in the future? You wanna talk about the influence of faith? It begins with the next generation of us investing in them and saying, no, here's what your true identity is. It's not what that guy says about you. It's not what that girl says about you. It's not what that coach says about you. It's not what that teacher says about you. Jesus says, your identity is this. Now go live that way. Because when they know who they are, you don't even have to tell them how to behave. Well, maybe with teenagers, you actually do. But when we know who we are in Christ, it begins to define a direction for how we live. Paul goes on in the next part of the, of the, chapter, of the, the greeting it's the final part, and it gives the meat of the message. So you have the author, you have where he's writing to, but then he says to the faithful in Christ Jesus. There's the message. And you're like, what, the faithful? The, no. I said this before. In the New Testament, it's very interesting. We carry the name or the identity or the label Christian. Like you're here today, and because you're here today, you're sitting at the Frederick campus, you're sitting here right near the Nile campus, you're watching online, you call yourselves, most of you would say, I'm a Christian. Would you agree? How many times is the word Christian mentioned in the Bible? It's actually three. Somebody, some of you said zero, it's as good as zero, it's three. Luke mentions it twice. Peter mentions it once. Paul 
never mentions it. Writer of Paul, Paul, the writer, the missionary, he wrote 13 books. He wrote, you know, most of your New Testament. He never even uses the word Christian, which I kind of like because the word Christian means anything and everything nowadays, right? It's kind of lost its power. Here's what Paul does. We've talked about it before. Paul, in his 13 different letters to different churches or people in the New Testament that he's writing to, he uses a phrase that defines what our identity is. And I'll explain it. The phrase is this. He says, to the faithful, what? In Christ Jesus. You guys realize that in the New Testament, in the epistles, 216 times, 216 times, Paul used that phrase with attach. He uses that phrase to identify, and then he gives you a label connected to that identifier. He says, in Christ, in the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians, chapter one, in the first 14 verses, he says it 14 times, in Christ, you're adopted. In Christ, you are chosen. In Christ, you are blessed. In Christ, you are gifted. In Christ, you are included. In Christ, you've been given purpose. In Christ, you are a son or a daughter. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. 216 times throughout his writings. What is he trying to say? The actual meaning for in Christ is the idea that someone has traded places with you. Who is that someone? It's Jesus. It's the idea that Jesus has subbed in for you and he's putting on the jersey and he is living and playing for you. And Paul writes and he says, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And these people in Ephesus, he goes on through the rest of the book, six chapters, and he begins to define what it means when Christ trades places with you. And he says, when Christ has traded places with you, it defines some things about your life. It defines how you behave. It defines your value. It, it defines what you believe about yourself. It defines your direction. And if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and if Jesus Christ's resurrection power is in you, then how does that redefine how we live? How does that redefine what we're capable of? How does that redefine the expectations of how we should live and what might be possible? How does that redefine your labels? Because I don't think anybody is looking at Jesus and saying incapable. I don't think anybody's looking at Jesus saying irresponsible. I don't think anybody's looking at Jesus saying deadbeat dad, addict, And you may not believe it, but what God looks at when he looks at us is he sees a Jesus who has traded places with us and he sees the characteristics and the persons of Jesus in us. And he says, yes, you, you are a sinner. Scripture says that we are a sinner. But what the book of Ephesians says is you are a saint. The God, because of Jesus, says you are a saint who just sometimes sins. You don't have to be defined by your mistakes. You don't have to be defined by your sins. You can be defined by what Jesus Christ did in you and for you and the spirit that he has lived inside, given inside of you that is calling you up and calling you out to be more of what he's called you to be. Your marriage doesn't have to stay in the place, same place. Your reputation doesn't have to stay in the same place. 
You don't have to live by and be defined by your faults in, in your past because God has a future for you that says, I can redefine. If he can take Paul, who every single Christian saw, Saul walk in the door after he'd seen Jesus and they were freaking out, scared to death. This guy's gonna arrest me. He's... No, now he's Paul. And he became a leader in their churches and he changed the picture of what the church was doing. How do you do that? I'll give you two things. You want a new identity in Christ. We're gonna spend the next six weeks talking about your identity in Christ, but you want a new identity in Christ. You've gotta trade places with Jesus. And the Bible says that that's very easy. The Bible says that by our faith, we place our faith in Jesus Christ and then we respond. In the gospels, you see when people responded to Jesus, to his gift of grace, they believed in him, they repented of their sins, and there was always evidence of a change in baptism. And baptism was that beautiful picture where a person was buried underneath the waters and the picture that they've been raised up, traded places with Jesus, living a new life. Now, do we still deal with some of the consequences of our sins? Yes, but we don't have to be trapped by them. God says, I'm more powerful, I'm bigger, I'm stronger than you, and I can lead you to something very different. If you have not accepted Christ as your savior, confessed him as the son of God, said he is the son of God, and I want him, I need him to be the forgiver of, our, of my sins, you're missing it. You have not traded places with him. And God's asking you to be buried in those waters of baptism, to be raised up to a new life. You can do that. The second thing is, is you begin to believe what Jesus' words are about you. I don't care what you've been told in the past. You begin to believe what Jesus' words about you. And here's the deal. When you know who you are, it doesn't just change how you behave. It changes the value of who you are. It changes the direction of where you're going. It, changes, it can change the destiny of your life. And you may not believe it, but man, I believe it. And I see evidence of it all the time. It's not your circumstances that define your destiny. It's not your wealth. It's not what you have. It's the God in you. I went over to Kenya, spent 10 days, took my two daughters. On the second day, we went into uh, the slums and we walked in and we would do home visits and we went to this young lady's house named Gladys. Gladys has a couple siblings that go to our school at Mohi, but she's older, she's a high school student, she does not go. But her, her little siblings go. And they've had all the blessing of being educated there and being connected there and they're connected with the church that's associated there. And Gladys is this big personality who lives in the Mathari Valley that's filled with one million people, one of the most poverty-stricken places I've ever seen. And most people in the Mathari Valley aspire to this, to selling tortillas or trinkets or something on the street corner to try to just take care of their family. They live in tin shanties, they don't have much. And I'm sitting there and I'm just listening to us talk to this family. We're talking about life and my girls are talking about what they enjoy doing. And I don't know why I asked the question, but I just, Say, Gladys, what do you want to do? Like, Gladys, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I didn't expect much. And Gladys said to me, she said, I love to sing. She said, I love to sing. And I asked her mom, I said, is she a good singer? Well, any mom would say yes. But she sings song for us and we're excited about that, listening to her. I'm like, man, she's good. She said, I'd love to sing and I'd love to sing on the radio someday. And I'm thinking, Gladys, I'd love for you to sing on the radio someday too, but but I don't know. We went back to Mohi, went back to the school and we were hanging out the second two days of VBS and we were standing there with a bunch of older kids and, and Enoch, one of our 
uh, PE teachers at Frederick High School and varsity basketball coach went with us. And he gets down to the end of one session and he looks at all this group of kids and he asks the same question. I don't know why he asked the same question, but he did. He said, what do you guys want to do when you grow up? And one of the kids says, I want to be a doctor. It's like, a doctor. And then another kid said, I want to be a soldier. And another said, I want to be a bus driver. And, and another said, and they just went on through these things, doctor, teacher, all these different things that if you looked at their circumstances, you're going, nah, I hope so. We started asking Mohi about it. And what Mohi has done is Mohi has began to tell those kids who they are. Mohi's been begin to call them up into a better identity, a stronger identity, saying, Who's who, here's who God has said you, you are. And we began to talk to Mohi, and I love the line. They said, we believe that someday we are going to graduate a president of Kenya that's going to come from the slums. Circumstances don't dictate that. Economics, you, you, can't, you can't write that story. But what God says to each and every one of us if you begin to understand who you are in me, you begin to believe who I have called you to be and you begin to live in that identity, everything is possible. Parents, there's some kids that need to be called into their identity in Christ. Not their academics, not their sports, in Christ. Spouses, there's some of, you, some of you that you need to call your spouse into their identity and believe in them and love them. Bosses, you need to begin to believe. And for all of us, we stand here looking at a God who has said, here's who you are. You are adopted. You are loved. You are purposed. You are gifted. You, you walked in as one person. You have the opportunity today to walk out as another and to begin living in that. Will you believe it? Will you choose it? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for calling us up in a world that tries to divide and is constantly looking at people who do not agree and constantly calling them things, pushing them down, creating dividing lines. Father, we thank you that you just sent Jesus to be the one identifier for us and to reclaim our identity and tell us who we really are. And so, Father, as we go through these next six weeks and we begin to talk about what chapter one says and chapter two and all the way through chapter six about what our identity is, Father, I pray that it'll, that identity will be claimed by many, many people. There'll be many who choose to give their lives to Christ and be baptized. There'll be many that choose to live out of that new identity and it won't just change their lives. Father, I pray that it'll change the destiny of their family of their friendships, of their relationships, of their businesses. Father, I pray that we could be an influential people that bring joy and wholeness and health to the people around us because we understand who God's called us to be. Father, help us to choose it. Jesus, thank you for trading places with us. It's in your name we pray.